This is the Eminem Planet Podcast, episode 57. I'm your host, Joel Amidon. Thank you for joining me on this never-ending quest to figure out how to teach better. Today on the podcast is someone who's thinking about how to teach better, and that is Dr. Erica Halverson. So I threw it out there. I saw that she had a book coming out, and I was so excited. It's called How the Arts Can Save Education, Transforming Teaching, Learning, and Instruction. Send an email saying, hey, do you want to come on the podcast and talk about your new book? And she, I mean, seriously, minutes, hours, uh, very quickly uh, replied back, yes, that'd be great. And I was like, ooh, that's great. And then when can we do it? And she threw out some dates, and one of them was the day before my birthday. So I'm like, ooh, I get to release this podcast with Erica Halverson talking about her new book on my birthday. Can't think of a better gift. So I I was blessed in having the conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it if you're listening to this podcast. If thinking deeply about teaching, uh, that's what that's what Erica does, is she thinks deeply about teaching, learning, students, the arts, and thinking about how these practices and things can be brought into the world of education for like a reset and think, and let's rethink about what are we talking about here with regards to teaching and learning and education in general. So she's got a book, it just got released and I'm going to offer a disclaimer. You're going to hear some things that are going to pique your interest and we're not going to cover a fraction of the book. And I just saw a fraction of it and I'm excited about the fraction just as I saw. And now I'm excited that my book is on the way. And if you want to order it, there'll be links in the show notes uh, there's no way that you can gain the whole value of the book in just this conversation. So go ahead, go to the link, uh, purchase it. If you want, go to your local bookstore. Uh, we talked about Square Books, or, or I talk about Square Books all the time. Uh, Erica talked about A Room of One's no- Own. That's in Madison, Wisconsin. Support those local booksellers. Go get her book. And how, again, it's How the Arts Can Save Education, Transforming Teaching, Learning, and Instruction. It just came out. I'm excited about it. I'm excited about this conversation. Let's not delay anymore. Here is my conversation with Dr. Erica Halverson on her book, How the Arts Can Save Education, Transforming Teaching, Learning, and Instruction. Erica, how are you? Thank you for coming on the Eminem uh, Planet podcast. And I, I already said it, but how are you? I'm great. I'm delighted to be on Amadon Planet today. Um, <laughs> that is that is a great metaphor for uh, the the world that we're going to live in for the next 45 minutes. Um, you know, I, as you probably saw in the book, um, I create learning environments that also have, have metaphorical frames around them. Cause I'm That's a big right. believer in setting the tone and setting the, setting the stage for people to know that we're going in to participate in something that might be a little different than they're normally used to. So Amadon planet is a great, uh, a great metaphor, and I'm delighted to be on it. That's right. When I think about like the uh, you know the formation of a planet, it's like twirling. It's like a, you have some gases and things like coming together. And like right in the infancy of Amazon Planet, there was Erica right there, like to help like point out ideas, help me like think about like big things. And uh, you know, you were on my dissertation committee, and so I and I I always and I give this speech off, and I like talk about who's the role on a dissertation committee, and I talk about um you and how you know what you would take an idea and hold it and like look at it and think deeply about it and someone else's and like treat it with care but then also say like this needs work and like I did some I remember exiting your office once and like oh my gosh am I gonna do this but like that was the best thing that anyone could ever done is like tell me how it is tell me like hey this thing needs some work and that led to much better work coming out and I wouldn't be where I am today without you. So I greatly appreciate you and how you uh, approach just people that care about education. So, and that's why we're here today. That's an awesome thing to say. Thank you so much. So, uh, I mean, we were talking before this and I was like, man, we should probably hit record because we're going to be <laughs> And because you're a busy person. So let's let's give a little bit of background. Can you give a little self-introduction of uh, who the great Erica Halverson is? Sure. So um, I, currently, I'm a professor and I'm the department chair of the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. This is my um, 16th year wow. as a faculty member here at UW. 
Uh, my PhD is in something called the learning sciences, which is uh, an interdisciplinary field in education that's concerned with questions like, what does it mean to know and learn stuff? Um, how do we know what learning looks like? Um, how do we design learning environments that take advantage what we, of what we understand about knowing and learning? Typically, we take both kind of a cognitive science perspective on that. So what's going on, quote unquote, in people's heads and among people's heads as we're knowing and learning. Yeah. Um, and then a social and cultural and historical perspective as well, right? So saying, um, what does it mean to think about learning as a concept invested within social networks, communities, historical ideas, um, so I, I have a PhD from the learning sciences from uh, Northwestern University. Um, and I'm also a trained theater artist and community arts activist. So uh, I currently run a community arts outreach program in Madison called Whoopin Soccer. Um, and a lot of the book uses my experiences in Whoopin Soccer uh, as a foundation for understanding how teaching and learning and the design of learning environments writ large um, can be different. Nice. And then you captured all these ideas in, in a book. So, and that's kind of the impetus for why we've came to have this conversation today. So how the arts can save education, transforming teaching, learning, and instruction. So how, how did this come to be? Ooh. So it's been <laughs> long, a, a pretty story, yeah. <laughs> a pretty long effort and long story. I mean, I think I knew, I always knew that I wanted to write a book. And that sounds very, I don't know, extra. But, um, you know, like many of us who had lives before becoming academics, I think we stepped into academia because we thought we had more to say beyond just being a practitioner of the things that we believed in. So yeah. when I went to graduate school, I had started and was running another community arts outreach program in Chicago, which is currently called Playmakers Lab, um, but was called Barrel of Monkeys when we started it. Um, and I was engaged in the work of um, bringing joy to learning environments with elementary school age kids through the arts. Uh, and... I didn't really know anything about learning or teaching um, or children for that matter, <laughs> other than that I had just been one. Um, and we were doing this work and kids seemed to be stuff. Uh, and the kids who teachers would repeatedly point out didn't typically learn stuff or at least didn't typically demonstrate that they had learned stuff were stars in our program. And that was interesting to me. Yeah. And so I went to graduate school to try to get smarter about that. Um, and then along the way, as probably you know, and many people that do this work know, you sort of get caught up in the cycle of academia mm -hmm. where you then become the kind of person, we were talking about this before we started, become the kind of person who writes academic articles as the mechanism to communicate what you know which is intellectually really challenging yeah. and, and engaging. Um, and uh, part of the game of being an academic, um, but is not super rewarding in terms of communicating what you know to a broader audience. Right. Um, so all of that has been swirling around in my head for 20 years. And about maybe three or four years ago, uh, I was like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to figure out how to take the work I do as a practitioner and the ideas that I've had as a researcher and my, I think by now, pretty vast knowledge of big ideas in education research. And I'm ready to put that all into one manageable, readable, um, hopefully engaging package. I would um, say entertaining. Entertaining. Entertaining, entertaining yeah. package. Uh, one, one 
exciting, entertaining package. And if you, if, if anybody has seen the cover of the book, which I can talk a little more about, the cover is also designed to, to communicate some of those ideas. Um, and so I wrote a sample chapter and actually um, did not start with the beginning. Um, and I don't know if you've talked to other book authors and if, whether they've told you kind of about their process at all, no. but I think that actually turned out to be a really good move for me, which is I started with kind of a manageable piece of the work uh-huh. rather than trying to be like, in the beginning there was, <laughs> right? I just yeah. said like, here's an idea I know I want to talk about, which is what is now chapter four of the book, which is uh, the chapter about teaching and about improvisation as a model for good teaching. Um, so I started with that. And then um, I found a publisher and I, I did that mostly for my own accountability because I knew that if the only thing I had to be accountable to was myself, it would never happen because life gets in the way. You know, you take on other professional responsibilities. You become department chair in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and you're like, here are 80,000 other things that I need to be doing instead of this. Um, so I, I had a, a contract which kept me to some set of deadlines, which yeah. was really useful. Um, and I, uh, wrote a whole, I wrote a whole book and then I gave it to my husband, the also brilliant, um, academic Rich Alverson, yes. also a member, um, of, of Amazon planet. Um, <laughs> and he said, great, this is a good start. You need to write this whole thing again. Um, and at first I was like, oh, Hell no. Um, I wrote a book. Are you crazy? Um, and, but he, like, like you said, you know, the, the, the kindness that I offered you, my husband offered me the same kindness of saying, if what you're trying to do is communicate these ideas in, uh, engaging readable package, you're not there yet. And I can tell you all the reasons why I think that's true. So I wrote the whole thing a second time. Um, and uh, that that process sort of finished off in maybe this past April. Uh, and then kind of from April till now was was more kind of production-y stuff. So the, the kind of text of the ideas had been pretty well nailed down by kind of last, last April. That seems fast. I mean, between April to like, hey, I've, I'm going to have a book arrive at my doorstep in a few. That seems really, I don't know. Is that, was that fa- you is know, that- I don't, I don't know. I mean, I will tell you that if at that point it felt slow to me, okay. not because, because at that point I was well, impatient. Yeah. 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 And, and I was like, great. I wrote the whole thing. I wrote the whole thing again. Again. Yeah. Now I feel good and I'm ready. And there was sort of this, it was almost like a gestational, you know, like a third trimester or something where you were like, I cooked this baby. Now I'm ready for it to be born. Um, (laughs) Editor says, hey, check these proofs. I'm like, I've seen them. Yeah. I'm like, I "I know, (laughs) I know. Um, But uh, so I would say from the time, you know, I wrote the first, the the first draft of the first chapter um, in summer 2019. So, you know, so maybe let's say May of 2019 to October of 2021 for sort of the full production cycle. Yeah. Well, I, I want to start actually with the chapter because the, 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 the chapter that you just pointed out was the one that you wanted is actually the chapter that stood out to me the most. And let me tell you why they had a little story behind it. So here at the university, uh, Mississippi, sometimes there's folks that want in, in the program, they might want their units or their lessons scripted, like scripted almost to the T of like mm. what should happen. And, and for me in my methods class, I'm thinking like, well, we're doing these messy open-ended tasks where we give them and we're like, here's all these different ways you could approach it. You can use manipulatives. You can use like all these different tools in order to 
represent using some of your language. There we go. Make mm-hmm. some art here. Um, represent mm-hmm. like you're thinking about how you might attack this problem. You can act in it out. You can like create a drawing, whatever, like, or use symbols, whatever, whatever. And so like, if that's open, how can you script that? Like a kid might do something totally like unexpected, use some, you know, something that in the classroom in a way that you would not even understand. And like, and you know, nothing's, you know, unique to me but I was like this is not a play this is improv this is you know this is whose line is it anyway like oh yeah I've seen that like that that's what we're talking about we're creating this situation and I I know I'm I'm, again I know I'm not the first to think that but it's like trying to convince like so how do you even think about this in the world of it and then here we go here's a whole chapter on thinking about improv what why improv what what like I don't know, not that you need academic, but like, what's the argument for improv? You know, I just actually gave this spiel yesterday. I ran a um, professional development workshop for teaching artists, um, mostly dancers. Um, And an interesting thing about my work now is I have kind of two primary audiences. One is artists who want to be teachers The other are teachers who I believe need to incorporate art making practices and processes in order to be successful teachers. Um, And and I say that because um, it's the same work, but the assets that those two groups are bringing are very different, right? So artists tend to be pretty confident about the ways that they can work in the classroom, but much less confident about sort of teachery stuff, right? I don't know a lot about, you know, how kids learn. I don't know a lot about, you know, how I might measure stuff. I don't know, you know, a lot of the practices, question answering practices, right? And so some of the work of improvisation is about explaining to artists how the rules of improv give you some of those structures. With teachers, on the other hand, and pre-service teachers, like both of us work with, um, they come in much more confident about teachery stuff, um, but they tend to be very risk-averse in terms of setting up classrooms where unexpected things might happen. They very much, I think, want to control the room so that they don't leave anyone behind. So it's done for a good reason, but often the result is what you're saying, which is, no, I need to control every aspect of this. Um, And so the main message that I give to both groups um, is the concept that scaffolding risk-taking is the primary move for any successful learning environment. Um, And I'll say a little bit more about that, but first I'll say my belief is no one can learn anything if they're not willing to be wrong and no one is willing to be wrong if they don't take a risk. And that applies to to learners, but it also applies to teachers, right? right? Teachers have to be willing to take risks. Teachers have to be willing to set up situations where they might be wrong or where the collective knowledge construction that happens among teachers and students and the tools that they're working with might take some funny pathways before you get there. So that the the learning path isn't, I'm a teacher with information, I give it to a student and then they reproduce that information in a way that tells me that they've um, taken in what I've given them. That pathway is a a false pathway to learning. Um, And so a a lot of the work that I do with pre-service teachers is not only explaining to them what scaffolding risk-taking is and how to use it in their classroom, but I also scaffold their risk-taking. So we spend a lot of time in my classrooms setting up the conditions for pre-service teachers to be able to take their own risks and then helping them understand how those same strategies 
can apply when they are the instructional leader in their own teaching space. Okay. So, so what, so what does this look like? So I guess, you know, some people they're, they're going to go get the book. They're going to read it for themselves, but like, let's, let's, let's wet their appetite a little bit. So like, what, what does that actually look like to, to do some of the things that you're talking about in, in, in using the arts? Yeah. So, you know, very practically, the first thing it means is that getting everyone in the learning environment to feel comfortable contributing Mm. is not a nice thing to do if there's extra, but a necessary precursor to dealing with complicated content. So, you know, everybody poo-poos getting to know you activities. And Mm -hmm. and I put that in in air quotes. I know that no one else can see me but you. Um, And I get why people hate that. They hate it when it's done as a like, oh yeah, 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 we're supposed to get to know each other. So here, give us two truths and a lie, right? Right. I mean, how many times have you had to say like, I have a dog. That's right. I have two children. I'm from New Mexico, right? And then people may or may not guess it and and sort of who cares, right? Instead, um, I think of activities such as um, having a daily ritual where people contribute into the space, something that is keeping them from being fully present. So acknowledging that it's hard to be in a learning environment, Mm -hmm. acknowledging that what we are asking of people is for them to bring their best selves, but we often don't um, give them an opportunity to reflect on why that might be difficult for them. Um, So I always, I begin every classroom, no matter what age of, of people, no matter how long we're going to be together with some sort of opening ritual that asks people to um, acknowledge that it's difficult to be in a space and to acknowledge something that might be keeping people from fully participating. Um, I also often have the kinds of warm-up games um, for people to play with one another that move us from all doing things together as a way to get people comfortable with risk-taking. So even something as simple as a physical stretch, right? Being in a Mm -hmm. space, stretching our bodies together um, and moving our bodies um, as a mechanism for uh, uh, getting people comfortable, difficult things. Then often I'll move to something like a call and response activity where I may contribute something into the space and then everybody contributes something back. So there again, people are being asked to use their bodies and voices, but not as individuals um, in a response to something that I'm doing. Uh, And then slowly over time, moving toward activities where people are asked to give something of themselves that is their own original contribution. So that might look like a very sort of classic improv warm-up, which we just call pass the sound in movement, where you pick a sound and a movement. Um, it could be your name, it could be nonsense, it could be a phrase, it could be anything from a single gesture of you know a claw in the air to you know a giant jump and stretching of your arms. And then everyone has to do it back. So eventually each person in the learning environment is contributing something unique of their own. But that takes time. And it takes scaffolding. Mm -hmm. You can't just say to people, cool, do something hard in front of everyone. Yeah, yeah. Go, right? Um, And that sounds so obvious, right, to experienced educators but we don't set people up pedagogically to focus on the conditions for people to contribute. The assumption is that people will contribute. And when they don't, we tend to put that on that person. Oh, that kid doesn't know what's going on. Oh, that person is quiet. Oh, they're, they're resistant, right? We, we, we turn that into a negative evaluation of the person rather than acknowledge that 
it's part of the design of the learning community to get people to a place where they are willing to contribute, knowing that they might quote unquote be wrong. Mm. And I don't mean wrong in the sense of like, you asked what three plus four was and someone said nine, right? I mean, be wrong in the sense of offering, offering an idea that contributes to something difficult and maybe having it be incomplete. Or as you said, maybe having it be something you've never heard before as a teacher, right? right? Where you go like, oh, where did that kid get that idea about like, you know, the this distributive property, right? They don't, they have the notion of distribution, but they have it in this different way. Mm-hmm. How can I use their concept of distribution to get us to the mathematically accepted definition of distribution rather than just say, no, that's not it. Who's next? But right. to get to a place where somebody even will offer that is part of the work of teaching. Well, I, think, I mean, and when you talk about learning sciences before and thinking about like, what does actually teaching and learning look like? And you, if people actually, and, and I don't know if sometimes, you know, you're talking to parents or things like that, or they're, you know, their kids struggling with something and they're just really distressed about that. But when you really think about what actually learning is, you have been pushed out to a point where I, um, I don't, I, I haven't been, I haven't done this thing before. Or I haven't, learn or I haven't I don't know this thing and like now I'm I'm getting to play in this space where there's this struggle a little bit and then you're actually learning something there and so there is something that, but but you're like you're saying you need to acknowledge that and like how do we get folks into a place where it's going to be this playground where there might be some uh misconceptions or some thoughts and, and things that might come out like that in a day or two you you would not have wanted to say that or, or you know better or you have a better understanding of things and so like but you actually think about what learning is is like and teaching is like living in that uncomfortable space and so you just to have this like, using this idea of improv how do you actually like construct this space through what you've done it's like it's beautiful it's uh, just it's and, and it makes sense but like when people think about some of their experiences i think you know I was successful in school and a lot of it didn't involve a lot of struggle. And so when it actually does happen, like I look back, like there was some very memorable experiences, but it was like, that wasn't the norm. Right. And so you're kind of acknowledging like, that's a great space to be in, but you have to carefully construct it. And yes. And that will allow us to take the concept of failure Mm. from a representation of a lack of doing something to part of the learning process, right? The idea that we have now that if you fail or if a school is failing or if, you know, uh, a teacher has a high percentage of kids who are failing, what we mean by that now is there is a lack of something. Mm-hmm. Oh, they didn't get the thing, whatever the thing is, right? I would prefer, um, and I think from, as you're saying, learning, if we really think about learning as a process, failing, i.e. not quite getting there, is actually a necessary part of constructing new knowledge. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I've said to my own 15 year old uh, who is for the first time, I would say encountering um, class work and learning environments where she doesn't immediately know the answers right away and where the teachers luckily are expecting of her to contribute new ideas Mm -hmm. as part of what it means to learn. And she's very frustrated with herself and she's used to the gold stars and, you know, she's gone her whole schooling career with, with being told that being good in school means already knowing the answers, you know, and I've said to her several times, which you can imagine as my 15 year old child, she loves, you know, <laughs> I said, if you can already do it, why do you even school? Right. Like if you already knew how to construct an argument about European history in the way that the humanities scholars 
who've developed this sort of college level, you know, curriculum for high schoolers, if you already knew how to do that, what, what is school even for? Right. Um, but it's an undoing and it's an undoing not of her design, right? She's been in school long enough to know that getting it right, whatever that means, is the marker of learning. And that's really unfortunate. And, you know, I'm on a campaign to, to flip that on its head. All right. So, so, so what are some, and I'm skipping around here cause I want to honor your time. Yeah. Oh, we're good. Okay. Um, but maybe I, you know, I did have this question is what does it not look like? Cause I, you know, some people might be like great title and then they don't dive any like this. Yeah. Art, this art's the way to go. And then, and the arts. And so but what, what are some cautions? Like, what does this, what does this not look like to use the arts in education? That is a great um, question. And I think I'm actually going to read you uh, what is the second, what is kind of the opening paragraphs. I'm going to read you a couple of paragraphs from the introduction because I think uh, that that is, first of all, a great question. And second of all, um, something that I've thought really deeply about. It's going to just take me a second to get there. Um, But uh, I want to say- I did like how when I asked another question before, you did the yes and. I noticed that. I so did. Appreciate, I appreciate that. Um, a little improv. I, <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and I will say as well that I struggled in writing the book to not have the first paragraph be what it wasn't about. And this is something I could thank my husband for, right? He's like, do not start a book <laughs> with what your book isn't about. Like, I get why you need to do that close to the front, but you got to start with what the book is about. And then I understand the need. So I appreciate that you asked the question. (laughs) Good call. But also like me, you're like, well, how isn't this everything? You know, you got to say what it is, but you got to say what it isn't. So this is from kind of the second page of, of the book. The age of accountability in education is losing its momentum. Education is in a time of profound change. We are increasingly aware of how learning outside of school provides life-giving opportunities for our most vulnerable kids. The arts, dance, theater, music, the visual arts, and the digital and design arts offer us a way to reimagine what good learning and teaching are and how to design learning environments that work for all kids. The COVID-19 pandemic shut down schools and exposed ever-present inequities in education. And though it has been heart-wrenching for teachers, students, and families, the disruption has also offered us the opportunity to fundamentally rethink what education can be. Gloria Ladson-Billings, of whom Joel and I are both great fans, fans. um, has called for a hard reset on education and for us to fundamentally reconsider the kind of human beings we want to produce. In this book, I will describe how the arts can save education by providing new models for learning that embrace the social, cultural, and historical assets that kids bring to the classroom. I will also share how an arts-based approach to teaching focuses on risk-taking as the most important aspect of a successful classroom. I offer a framework that leverages how arts practitioners do their work to design learning experiences for all subject areas. Throughout, I use my own arts organization, Whoop and Soccer, as a model for how to reframe learning as acts of metacognitive representation, identity development and collaboration, and lots and lots of joy. Before we get started, I wanna make a few things clear. This is not a book about arts education. There are many fine books on how to teach the arts, both in and out of schools, and I encourage you to read them all. What I am offering is something more. I use arts practices to fundamentally rethink what learning outcomes we should value, how we should teach, and how to design learning environments and experiences that can serve all kids. In my world, we are not teaching and learning the arts, 
The arts are teaching and learning. I will use the terms arts education, arts practices, and art making throughout the book. Across all of these, I am referring to the arts as a collective set of disciplines where people produce things. Those things can be physical artifacts like clay pots or short films, or they can be ephemeral performances like a music concert or improvised scene. Many of my examples are drawn from the performing arts because I've been performing my whole life. But this argument is inclusive of all forms where creative expression is involved. Okay, on with the show. Just on a side note, I love, I, I just, when you, when I was reading this the introduction, like I heard your voice and I heard it like, I mean, it was, it's the way it's written is Good. So the second draft, it was, it was excellent. You did good. That good was work. the goal. I'm yeah, so yeah. delighted to hear you say that, you know, that was the goal was to produce something that read like a person who you might want to hang out with and talk about these ideas was writing. And the excite, I mean, and again, you're always like a sense of excitement that you always carried in the classroom and stuff like that. You can kind of sense that in the, in the reading as well. And that's great. I mean, like, and that is, you're offering like this, Hey, here's some things to consider before you jump into this text. And then, um, you know, so I guess what have, what have been some of the, you, you, you've been on a little book tour here, right? Since, uh, this is the beginning. This, this is, the, is beginning. the beginning, Joel. I, oh I gave gosh. a talk at the Wisconsin book festival on Saturday live in front of humans, which was awesome. Nice. Um, but like you said, the book just officially came out on Friday. Yeah. Um, and so we're pretty early in, in the, in the sharing journey, which is delightful. Well, and I'm seeing, so like, we just got done, you know, you talk about glory lesson billings. We just got done. We did a, a, a book club that we're doing for some professional development around dream keepers, uh, you know, glory lesson billings, you know, classic book. I think it's coming out for its third edition, uh, in the I think early 2022, maybe. Um, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, thinking about this as a book of offering a vision for, you know, what teaching can look like and, and what teaching we could be shooting for and, you know, little progress, but there still needs to be a lot of work done. And like, but thinking of your book also as something that offers a vision, you know, and you, you even reference it in, in some of the thoughts and ideas about what the kind of the foundations of this book is like about cultural relevant pedagogy and culturally sustaining pedagogy. And like, Hey, this is, these are some things that what it could look like if we really like take the roof off and, and really think about what this, what this could look like. And so what I love about your book is that it is built off these experiences that these are real experience. These are not some just, you know, Erica sitting in the top of ed sciences, writing a book and like never stepping foot in the class. This is actual, like I've seen this done and it is, it can be done. Um, and so, but I guess before we back up a little bit and say, like, what are some assumptions about teaching and learning uh, that the ideas and practices described in the book are built on? Hmm. So I think there are, I would say, three big categories of ideas that I draw on. Um, the first are uh, ideas from cognitive science, um, and that really uh, betrays my background as a learning scientist, where I started learning about learning from that perspective. You know, I, I was an undergraduate theater major and thought I was going to be a professional actor. And so my first class, frankly, on education, on in the social sciences, really, was my first day of graduate school. So yeah. for me, cognitive sciences is kind of a ground floor. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly, I'm inspired by constructivism, constructionism, the, the sort of line of thinking in cognitive science that starts with um, the idea that people, knowledge, all knowledge is built on pre-existing knowledge. So constructivism tells us that we build continuous understandings as humans, that we don't have floating concepts or information 
that get delivered to us um, whole from someone and implanted into our, you know, memory hole. (laughs) But rather we are continuously updating and making sense of the world based on the experiences, the ideas, the understandings, the histories that we already have. Um, And unfortunately, much of traditional teaching is not based on a constructivist understanding of learning. Um, And and just slightly more specifically, constructionism with a T is a a branch of constructivism that um, the late great Seymour Papert developed that extended the metaphor to the actual making of stuff. So Papert would say, not only is all knowledge built on all other knowledge, but we acquire that through the actual construction of artifacts. So learners, that that kind of learning is most effective when a person is physically creating something, whether that's, and, and that can be a digital thing, it can be a physical thing, it can be an ephemeral thing, but that the learning is within the making. So mm. cognitive science. Then the, the second branch of ideas that I'm inspired by is the world of kind of multi-literacies, new literacies, progressive visions for what it means to be a literate human. So I'm not just talking about reading and writing text, right. although reading and writing text is, is one form of literacy, right? I'm talking about... Um, the consumption and production of ideas uh, as the primary mechanism for how we make sense of the world. So scholars like Jim G, Michelle Noble and Colin Lankshire, um, Brian Street, you know, the, the whole New London group um, who advanced a vision for literacy um, that is much more expansive than phonics. Mm -hmm. Um, That is, I think, in many education circles, fairly well accepted, although I'm sure, as you know, some of the curricular supports that we offer lag way behind the understanding that we now have about what it means to do literacy successfully. so I'm very inspired by the, the multi-literacies argument, and, and I have some extensive conversation about that. Um, and then the third piece is what you mentioned, Joel, the world of culturally sustaining pedagogies um, and what had, had initially been called culturally relevant pedagogy, but that Gloria and others have, have shifted um, to this concept of culturally sustaining, which begins to take account of the sort of local culture and youth cultural components of what it means to be a cultural human being. So culturally relevant pedagogy had focused most on sort of culture as an historical artifact, Mm -hmm. right? So what does it mean to be a member of an African-American community, for example, or what does it mean, um, right, to be... Uh, a Mexican-American person with linguistic and historical and cultural resources. But what Gloria and others noticed was that in our modern world, local culture and youth culture intermixes with historical cultures in really delightful and incredible ways that young people bring into the classroom and that that is the space where we need to be working. Um, And sometimes that's called asset pedagogies, Mm -hmm. meaning moving from uh, starting with the assumption that kids are missing stuff as the foundation for the design of of learning environments to beginning with what kids are bringing into the space as the foundation for how we design. Um, And for my money, arts practices are, are those assets. Yeah. So you know, when we say culturally, what does it mean to be engaged in culturally sustaining pedagogical practice? I would argue what we mean is engaging in collective art making. 
Um, and, and, and I would use those interchangeably. Um, I would use those interchangeably. Yeah, that was it. Cause I, I did have Gloria on the podcast. Long. You did. I did. It was fun. Oh my gosh. I was so nervous. Like, I don't, oh, I, don't I bet. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, she's great. And, and, but then we were talking about the original, you know, original book, the dream keepers. And she's talking about like, you know, it was easier to do things at a younger grades, but she would have loved to do it at a little bit older grade. Cause she saw like teenagers, they're like you said, producers, they're producers of culture. They're like, not just, you know, receive, they are, they're in, they are making right They're They're in the midst of making. And like, it's, it's almost like you're offering like, Hey, how do we tap into that? Or how do we provide them these environments to to like make art and and think about like how does that incorporate into what the kind of environments that we're creating for in our, our learning environments that we're creating and how do we validate the contributions right. Right. that young people are making to our learning environments and that applies to teenagers but it applies to young children as well right, right. i mean i do a lot of in my own practice i do a lot of um creative writing and performance with younger children, um, eight, nine, 10 year olds, uh, they also generate a lot of culture. Um, you know, they have ideas about the ways in which the popular cultural world applies and doesn't apply to them. Mm, Um, and how they can express that through writing and performance. Um, and frankly, how, they can incorporate ideas that are typically thought of as transgressive. Um, you know, and, and in the book, you know, you'll see one of the greatest triumph of this book is that there is an index line that says poop jokes slash stories <laughs> and with three separate references in the text. That's, and I was oh. like, Oh, this is how, you know, I've written a good book. Go um, but you know, uh, scatological humor is for is transgressive um and my feeling is that should be part of what we allow kids to bring into a creative space particularly if we can work together to produce something that values what they bring but also generates something meaningful and delightful for a public audience and it doesn't have to all be poop jokes i mean but who doesn't like that yeah (laughs) See now, now I'm really excited. I can't wait for that when this book arrives. Oh my gosh, that's awesome! <laughs> In the index, uh, it's great. Uh, and uh, whoever did the indexing, if you're out there, person who does the indexing for Teachers College Press, I would love to buy you a drink. Yeah, because you Big have done fan. an outstanding job. Outstanding job. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, um, you know, and again, we're gonna put links to the book in the the show notes. Um. I have show notes now. Uh, <laughs> You're fancy. Fancy. Um, but yeah, we'll put links to the book. But then, you know, so thinking about what are some key points, you know, if someone, you know, there's like, I'm going to get to it. I'm, I'm a teacher. I'm in the midst of things. But yeah. what are some key points that you would like somebody to walk away from this podcast knowing some and teachers? And again, we kind of an, on Amazon Planet, we think of teachers as, you know, obviously educators that are in, you know, K-12 classrooms, but also, you know, as parents, we're teaching all the time or, mm-hmm. you know, in all sorts of different environments. Like, and you're thinking of all, about all these environments too, when you're thinking about some of these places that you're have influence over. So what are some key yeah. points that you'd want people to take away from uh, this conversation? Yes. Um, so I think the big idea I'd like people to take away about learning is that, um, Art making is a fundamentally representational practice, meaning that what we do when we make art is we are engaged in a cycle of using tools to share difficult concepts with external audiences. That's what we're doing. And that that representational process is what we want kids to be doing in any discipline in school. Mathematics is a representational process. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of our colleagues, uh, I'm a fan of uh, Noel Enyady at Vanderbilt, Mm -hmm. who's written about um, mathematics as a a recursive representational practice. Um, Science is, is fundamentally a representational practice. So in terms of learning, I think thinking about how to engage 
learners in cycles of representation is a lesson we can take from the arts that applies across the board. In terms of teaching, I think this idea of scaffolding risk-taking as the core mechanism of what it means to be a successful teacher is the thing I would like people to take and to think about that, um, the role for improvisation in scaffolding risk-taking. I think in terms of the design of learning environments, how do you design your teaching and learning spaces to embrace those big ideas? Um, I see that work as cycles of conceiving, representing, and sharing, where you're focused on, okay, what are the ideas that I want to communicate, right? Um, what are the conceptual understandings that, that are a core part of what it means to be in this learning space? How do I use the tools of this medium to engage in the representation of those concepts? And then when and how do I share those with external audiences as a mechanism for checking my own understanding and development? So I think those are my, those would be my three big takeaways. And, and throughout the book, I give specific examples of what each of those looks like, both within arts practices and in other disciplines um, that have brought in these kinds of practices uh, into their, into their own designs. Um, you know, some of, uh, I know you're a big fan of, of Rico Gutstein and, and some of his work is, is well represented in this space. It, it, it ends up looking quite similar. Um, there's some folks doing really cool stuff with dance and science, thinking about the ways in which embodied movement uh, helps us better understand certain kinds of scientific concepts. Um, there's lots of work in the indigenous teaching and learning community around the intersection of um, art making and science learning, particularly the visual arts. Uh, so there's lots of places where people can look for examples of, of how this looks in a, in a learning environment. Yeah. I mean, it just from other things that that just sparked for me was like Chris Emden's work in science education. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it, it, folks have not seen his work. I mean, you know, he's, I just, I was thinking of when you talk about the tools of representation and so thinking about, you know, as teachers, how can we expand or represent, you know, what, what, what counts, right. As representing the ideas that we're trying to, you know, make within the classroom. And like Emden is, is making parallels between in some of his books. Uh, I thought I had it here. Nope. Not here. But, um, but he's talking about like the parallels between a cipher and like how mm -hmm. scientists are building their arguments yeah. upon each other. And that that's how we're building rhymes on each other and putting those, making those parallel or a rap battle is when, Hey, here's yeah. my theory and I'm taking the data and put it this way. All right. So then I'm taking your words or your, your, the way you're representing things or where you're seeing things with your theory. And I'm going to take my theory and throw it back at you. And it's, it's kind of like a parallels with a, a, a rap battle. So yeah, yep. Chris Emden's stuff is, is excellent that way, but also too Absolutely. thinking about just that. I, I mean, think about just a question to ask in this is what counts as representations. And I just remember one of the things that one of those light bulb moments I had as a, you know, first year teacher was some kids solved how to find a slope of, or how to find the equation for a linear, um, uh, a linear, a linear pattern, right? So y equals mx plus b is what people always heard and think about, and like taking the points and putting it, plugging in the formula and stuff. And like it was the same thing that I'd done as a student. I thought that was the only way. And all of a sudden, someone's like, "Can I use a table to represent my thoughts?" Or can I? And I was like, "I never seen that." And it was just, I mean, and for like, was it a huge step for me? It was because like I'd only seen it one way, and like I'd only thought about like that a representation could only be one way and just that just expanded my world just a little bit so then it thinks like well what other representations yeah count in this world and so thinking about that what are the tools of representation that we are providing access to as teachers right or also to acknowledging the risk-taking and valuing the risk-taking yeah. like hey i you know like we we're talking about before they're on the edge of understanding and, and playing with some ideas and thinking like hey 
I saw, I acknowledge that you took a risk and maybe it didn't pay off, but think that's advancing all of our thinking. The fact that you were willing to take a risk that allows other people to take a risk. And I value that. And like to make it known that, Hey, part of what we do in here in this space is we're going to take risks and to make sure that it's acknowledged and like, and, and that's a, it's a part of what we do and, and like having a little bit of struggle is, is okay. And so mm-hmm. I don't know, like yeah. that's just some things that popped in. Now me. you're fired up. I am. I'm ex- I, I love it. Man, this is great. <laughs> I'm seeing a future, a uh, future uh, book club with some teachers to think about these ideas uh, coming up. So yeah, I, please. I and let me know if you want me to come and, and hang out with y'all. Cause that's like, you know, the, as far as I can tell, the only reason to write a book is that you can put something in the world that serves then as the opportunity for a conversation. And, that, and, and I was going to end with this, but like, I mean, that is it. I mean, the thing that the fact that you're willing to pour yourself into this book, that's a, people don't have access to hearing you talk about these things. Not everyone has access to you talking about these things in your classroom or, or participating in whooping soccer. And so the fact that you're, we're willing to put it into a book, it's like, it's amazing. And again, that's what you're, you're doing. You're sharing, you're putting these, you're taking a risk and putting these. I am taking a risk. Taking it's a true. Risk. Thank you for acknowledging that. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. I mean, you know, up until about a week ago, other than rich, Nobody had read this. And so I was like, (laughs) what is this going to be like? Um, And and scary for people to read it and scary for people to not read it. Yeah. I mean, put put yourself out there with a title too. How can the arts save education? Hey, there you go. And I had to fight for that title for that reason. The publishers were like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, I mean, yep, I am. You know, I, I get it. It's bold, but like, why, why do it if you're not going to be bold about the way you communicate it? Right. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking the risk. So, um, and you've shared some things about, uh, a teaching, but I just wanted to, in, and I could share some things that I think is the best thing you do in your teaching, but what's the best thing you're, you are an experienced educator. What is the best thing you do, uh, to help your teaching? And again, you might've mentioned something, but go ahead and put the emphasis on it or bold it, whatever. Yeah. Um, I think two things. One, I think this acknowledgement that being in a learning environment is a challenging act of humanity um, and that it is on the, in, the designer of the learning environment to provide opportunities for people to really engage with one another's humanity. Um, so these rituals, you know, I do those same rituals in all my classes. I don't care if my students are 50-year-old doctoral students or eight-year-old, you know, emerging readers and writers. It is important, it is, it is vital that we acknowledge one another's humanity as a part of what it means to do teaching and learning. So that's something that really matters to me. Um, and, uh, you know, this is le- less of a serious one, but it is also really important to me that I offer as many different forms of participation as possible. And I don't mean that in a cheesy learning styles way. Right. I mean it in like, you know, again, acknowledging that if we were all the same or if the goal was for us all to be the same, you know, we would be in a robot factory. Right but actually we're in a learning environment. Mm -hmm. And so that means I get to acknowledge that like Joel is really good at this thing. And so I'm going to lift him up as a, as a teacher and a learner in this space to be able to contribute this particular feature. And that these two children who have been in the United States for a week um, may not be the first and the fastest to offer a pass the sound and movement, but what, what are they offering that can then become an integral part of this learning environment? Maybe they're the best, you know, timekeepers I've seen. And that that is a crucial part of what it means in a learning environment to be successful is making sure you keep track of time, which I'm not good at. (laughs) Um, But, you know, maybe that kid, you know, from Iran who is really trying to figure out how to make his way in this classroom is like an ace timekeeper. And that that becomes a significant way in which he contributes into the, into the learning environment. So I took a lot of classes from you. And so I'm going to put one more, that thing that I think is something you do. 
you play with ideas. And I remember mm. like, and, and you allow, allowed us to play with ideas. And I remember we were doing something where we went into a public space and just took notes on everything we were noticing. And I had a partner that I did that with. And then we were like, just supposed to code it and come up, just come up with something based, come up with a concept and uh, that has feed. And we came up with the, that we were in a Barnes and Noble coffee shop. We were taking notes and we just noticed that people were taking, were having very serious, like private conversations that we could hear in the coffee. Shop. And we talked about like having private conversations in public spaces. That was like the thing that we came up with. We came up with like dimensions of it and everything. And like, you're like, yep, let's go with it. Let's, let's, what? And you just asked us very seriously. So like, we're, you're talking about like, you know, cheating on someone and like, blah, blah, blah. And like, like, God, really, but it was, I mean, but the thing is like, it wasn't, a, it was like playing around with that idea that got a, a, us at this idea of like, well, what does it mean to come up with something from data? And like, it didn't, it was like playing around, but it was you know, like the playful thing that allowed us to get at something that we needed to advance in our, in our studies. And it was, I just, I like that. I like that. It was a, a fun way to learn. And so I, it was, maybe we're, we were making art, right? Maybe. Like, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I think there are a lot of the principles that I just described are embedded in that kind of practice, even though no painting was made. Right. I mean, right, right. representation, you know, uh, iteration, sharing, um, you know, you, the use of the tools of the ethnographic medium mm -hmm. as a mechanism to do yeah. some of those things. Absolutely. Were well, you in the class where the person went to the strip club? <laughs> that's probably my favorite one of all time. Uh, no, no, but that, that'd be interesting too. <laughs> it was super interesting. <laughs> well, and, and, but, but do you think too, like, you know, it's been a while since that class and I still remember all this stuff yeah. and it's, it was meaningful, right? It was, yeah, it was a meaningful thanks. experience. So I appreciate that. All right. So this is the beginning of the book tour and this is going to go live tomorrow. My birthday is tomorrow. This is going live tomorrow. So it's going to be live. Happy birthday. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so I, I was, again, this is a, an early present for me. So I appreciate it. So where's the book tour going from here? Well, thanks to COVID, we're not totally sure. Okay. Um, I will be um, doing a virtual book event through a room of one's own, which okay. is Madison's, yep. uh, you know, finest local bookstore. Yes. That will be on November 10th. Okay. Um, and I'll be in conversation with um, someone, a woman named Ali Muldrow, who is a local um, activist and current president of the Madison Metropolitan School District School Board. Nice. Um, so Ali and I will be in conversation and because it's a virtual event, anyone can yeah. join. Um, and on my website, uh, which I believe is now ericahalverson.com, um, we're going to keep up with events there. So if folks want to, want to follow along at home, they can, they can see as events become available. Um, we're working on a tour of, um, art centers throughout Wisconsin. So I'm hoping to be able to Could get to cool. all of the places in Wisconsin that have um, thriving art scenes, which mm -hmm. are actually quite a few, yeah. which is great, despite the total lack of um, federal and state support for the arts in the state okay. of Wisconsin. <laughs> Excuse me. And hoping to get to New York. Um, gosh. Southern California. Um, I'll be at UC Irvine in February. So I'm hoping to do some things around that. Um, and my alma mater, Northwestern, uh, I'm hoping to uh, be able to announce when I'll be in the Chicago area. So if we post on Erica Halvers, I'll post a link to your website and then people can check in there. But we'll also, like, if there's a, um, a, a sign up for the virtual one on November 10th, we'll post a link yeah. to that there too. So all in the show notes. So again, Erica, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the book, putting out and taking the risk, putting it out into the world. And now we get to uh, uh, take up those ideas, think about them and think about how they can apply to our own teaching. That's great. Thank you so much, Joel. I'm just so blown away. One that I got to have a conversation. It's been a while since I've talked to 
Erica, and I spent a lot of time in classrooms, uh, again, or in her office, talking about ideas and things about, you know, what, what, what could a dissertation even look like? And again, she th- thinks deeply about this stuff and treats, well, treats your ideas like you're making art, like what we talked about, and like treats it as such, and with honor and respect, and, but also knows that she wants it to be the best representation it can be. Right. Just like Rich asked her to rewrite something. She asked me to rewrite things as well. And uh, I'm just very thankful for uh, for her and thankful for what she's putting out into the world. And just encourage everyone, if you want to think deeply about these ideas, I would suggest getting this book. So that's that's all I'm going to end there. So if you want, again, links are in the show notes. The show notes can be found at AmazonPlanet.com forward slash episode 57. Um, and if you're looking for ways to support the podcast and you like what you hear on this podcast, here's, here's how you can support me. Here's, here's a birthday present you can give to me, rate the podcast, review the podcast, share the podcast. Um, it'd be cool if we saw a spike in the listens, uh, for this episode, especially given some of the ideas that Erica's talking about. Um, just excited again for her to put that book out there. Let's, uh, let's acknowledge that she's taking a risk and putting things out there. So go ahead, share it, share it on social media, share it. Uh, there's links to share it, um, on any, anywhere where you get podcasts, you hit the little box with the arrow in it. That's a way to share it. So you send it to somebody, you can send them in a text message, you can send it an email, go ahead. Or if there's other episodes that you'd want to share, go ahead and share those as well. I'm putting links to the one I did with uh, glory lights and billions in the in the show notes because that one was also uh, pretty cool. And, and again, Erica's building on some of those ideas here. Anyway, those all will be in the show notes as well. But anyway, if you look again, if you're looking for, oh man, what do I get Joel for his birthday? Hey, subscribe to the podcast, rate the podcast, review the podcast, share the podcast. That'd be great. Um, you can also subscribe to the Amino Planet download. Again, we haven't been doing too much with that lately. Um, but if you join the email list, when that does get going again, doing some rethinking there, some reimagining, thinking about how best to use that platform. But anyway, you sign up for that. You can go to amadonplanet.com, hit one of those, join the email list buttons, and it'll be there. You can also follow at Amadon Planet on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, or like the Amadon Planet Facebook page. That also works as well. And you can also check out the Amadon Planet store, Amadon Planet bookshop. Um, links are in the footer at amadonplanet.com. We've got some of that Be the Good uh, shirts, hoodies, stuff like that, even coffee cups. You can get those and all those production costs, all those purchases support the production costs of the podcast. So thank you for listening to this episode of the Amadon Planet podcast. Thank you to Erica for spending some time on Amadon Planet. <laughs> Love that she uh, mentioned that in her uh, intro there. Thanks to Matt Mifflin for the music in this episode. And finally, thank you to all of you out there who are seeking to teach better and be the good in the world by investing in the lives of others. This world is a better place. It is because you have decided to use the gifts you've been given to serve others. Thank you for all that you do. Peace. Peace.